Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Let's begin by talking Talmud. What is, what is the Talmud? I like to say that the, to understand the Talmud, you have, to, you have to understand the time and place, and you also have to understand a little bit about the literature. The Talmud is the product of the rabbis. Now, when I say rabbis, I don't mean Rabbi Yanklowitz, even though he's a distinguished rabbi, obviously. Um, but I also don't mean medieval rabbis. I don't mean rabbis from the 15th century. I'm referring to a specific time and place. One of my pet peeves um, when I go into synagogues and I hear people talking about rabbis is that uh, because the rabbis who produced rabbinic literature end up being this kind of voice from nowhere, this anonymous collective, it becomes standard practice for rabbis in synagogue to just reference these people as if they had no separate identities and individual identities. It's just the rabbis said and the rabbis said. And the irony of that is the rabbinic literature is the most careful about citing the actual name of the person who is speaking. So ideas belong to the person who says, who says them, who said them originally. In fact, there are a number of different episodes in rabbinic literature where individual figures get annoyed or upset with people who don't give them credit for their own ideas. Um, so who were the rabbis who produced this rabbinic literature which often functions as an anonymous collective? The dates that I give for talking about these rabbis are two. I give a beginning and an end. The rabbis start in the first century CE or AD, and they go to the eighth century CE or AD. What, happens, what event happens in the first century that's a major catastrophe for Judaism that causes a big rupture that the rabbis have to repair? The destruction of the second temple by the Romans in Jerusalem roughly in 70 CE. What happens in the 8th century that is the end mark of what I call the rabbinic period? Uh, it's harder for us to come up with, like what happens in the 8th century? So um, in the 8th century, what we see is that in the ancient Near East, you have the rise of Islam. So Islam starts in the late 7th century. It's not just the rise of Islam but the rise and increasing institutionalization of Islam and the proliferation of Islamic ideas, which would start in the 8th century and continue through the 10th century. One of the things that's interesting about um, the rabbis and rabbinic literature and the evolution of Judaism is that actually the institutionalization of Judaism happens alongside, in parallel, and directly because of the institutionalization of Islam. So between the 8th and the 10th centuries, in modern-day Iraq, ancient Babylonia, 
the, um, there were these institutions of higher learning called yeshivas, or yeshivot, and these yeshivot used to study the Talmud, and through the vehicle of the yeshivot studying the Talmud and uh, getting students from all over the Jewish world at the time, so students could come from Yemen or they could come from Portugal or anywhere there were Jews at the time, they might be attracted to come to Babylonia to study in these yeshivas. That was a very important period between the 8th century and the 10th century for the institutionalization of rabbinic Judaism. That's how rabbinic Judaism comes to be the default standard for what Judaism is. But during the period, that, that we, the period of rabbinic Judaism, the period between the 1st century and the 8th century, that's a period in which Judaism is not yet that institutionalized, and rabbinic Judaism is in formation. It's a process that takes many centuries. It's not as though the temple is destroyed in the year 70 and a group of rabbis sits around and says, okay, our committee has to deal with the following crisis. We're missing Jerusalem, which means we no longer have a political home and we no longer have the ritual center of our lives, even though our entire religion is built on sacrifices and sacrifices can only be brought in a single place, namely Jerusalem in the temple. And there wasn't a committee that sat around and said, okay, how are we going to address this? Rather, forces that existed before the destruction of the temple evolved in light of the absence of the temple and evolved in the direction of scholarship and scholasticism, of intellectualizing the tradition and turning the tradition, which had been so focused on the temple and God's physical presence in the world, towards more towards books, and literature, and interpreting God's presence into the world. So that's the major thing that happens with the shift from the Second Temple period to the Rabbinic period. You're moving away from the Temple and towards Torah. Torah being an abstract idea. It is the Torah scroll that we probably have back there is, of course, a physical parchment object. But for the rabbis, the idea of the Torah is much bigger than the scroll itself. The idea of the Torah is some kind of set of ideas of God in the world that the rabbis both inherit and contribute to on an ongoing basis. And they, they did this in three different genres. They did, so they did this in three different genres, but the, the genres are best understood as social practices. So, during the period of the early, the early rabbinic period, so we divide the rabbinic period into two. The first and second centuries is the first half, and then the rest of it, the third century to the eighth century, is the second half. What event in the sec at the end of the second century divides and distinguishes between the first and the second half? Does anyone know what event? The Mishnah. The production of the Mishnah, the Mishnah is a code of Jewish law. It was produced orally, as were all of the books of rabbinic literature. And the Mishnah, the Mishnah is produced, it is, the Mishnah has two massive ramifications. One of the ramifications is it divides the sacred authority of the rabbis in the early period from the sacred authority of the rabbis in the later period. So from the perspective of the later rabbis, they didn't feel worthy to debate the rabbis who were before 200. So if you ever open up a Talmud and it's a multi-generational conversation, there's a hierarchy where the early rabbis who are called Tanaim, which is the plural of Tana, 
the early rabbis are venerated and are given the ability to establish the baseline of what the rules are. And then the later rabbis, the one that are after the Mishnah, they can interpret, they can offer rationales, they can, um, they can try to find an earlier rabbi who disagrees with an early rabbi's words, and so they can, they can introduce an, a level of argument that wasn't necessarily in the Mishnah. But they can't, in a flat-footed way, just say, I think the Mishnah is wrong. Or I think rabbi so-and-so who lived at the time of the Mishnah is wrong. They don't do that. So that's one major ramification of the production of the Mishnah, that it divides the rabbis into two periods. Another major ramification has to do with social practices, of what the rabbis were doing during the rabbinic period. So during the early rabbinic period, picture, when, you, when, you, when I want you to think about a rabbi, um, well, who the rabbis were, it's more Taliban than university. So the view you, the view you should have is of five, usually men, surrounding a single charismatic rabbi who was a teacher, studying in a home, maybe in the local synagogue, perhaps in a cave. We have episodes of that. That's why I mentioned Taliban, because of the caves of Afghanistan. Right, so like, it's not, you know, I teach at Northwestern. It's a major institution. We have a, we have a rich faculty and thousands of students, right? So, and later on, in the period between the 8th and the 10th centuries, if you want to envision what a yeshiva was in those days, there were a thousand students. So there were maybe, you know, a hundred faculty or something. We don't really know. But, but at that point, you can start thinking along the lines of institutions. But in the early period, you had individual rabbis who had a reputation for being good teachers and good scholars, and people would gravitate towards them. It was small groups, and it was an outgrowth of a phenomenon that had happened during the Second Temple period. During the Second Temple period, among the elite populations of Judea, there was a tendency towards sectarianism, where people would gather themselves into religious sects. They were Jewish religious sects, but they disagreed with one another about some core things, like what kind of calendar should we use? Should we use a 354-day calendar like Jews use now, which is a lunar calendar that accounts for solar seasons by accommodating it with leap years. That's what we do now. Or should we use a 360-day calendar, which is what the sect of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Essenes who, who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, the archive that was found in 1947 that were still mining for new information about the sects. So they had a 360-day calendar. So if the people running the temple in Jerusalem had a 354-day calendar, and the people in the Essenes in, the, in Qumran had a 360-day calendar, what does that say about their holidays? They weren't on the same day. In fact, the Essenes, the, uh, we have some evidence from the Essene documents that they were visited once by a figure from Jerusalem who may or may not have been the high priest on a day that they thought was Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, where, of course, you can't travel. Um, or at least in those days, it was understood that you couldn't travel. So during the sectarian period, you had sects of learned, again, mostly men, young men, who are inculcated by charismatic teachers who go off and produce a rich library of texts, some of which is inherited from the past, biblical texts that are copied, some of which are new texts. So if you look at the archive of the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you look at the library that was found at the Dead Sea Scrolls, about a third of it is texts that we have from the Bible. About a third of it is texts that are not in the Jewish Bible but are in the Apocrypha. They're on external materials that we knew of 
that were outside the Bible, but we know to have been around during the Second Temple period. We can't tell. We don't know if the Dead Sea Scroll people thought this was in their Bible or not in their Bible. Did they even have the same notion of a Bible as we do? But then there's a whole third of texts where this sect at Qumran made their own literature based on those other literatures, in dialogue with those other literatures. And so it's the richest example of something in the Second Temple that resembles what the rabbis would later do, which is the rabbis would inherit the Bible and create a whole new literature that was interpreting that old literature. The rabbis who, went, who were um, active in the early part of a rabbinic period, the rabbis who were the Tanaim, before the, prior to the publication, the oral publication of the Mishnah, they basically had two styles of study. So when they would show up for work, because they, they probably were studying full time, um, even though there is evidence that they also had jobs because they had to support themselves, at least in some cases. Though, I will also, as an aside, say many of them appear to have been wealthy, which kind of makes sense. That's what allows you to spend time studying. The, um, the rabbis would either spend their time opening up a Tanakh, if not uh, opening up a Hebrew Bible, if not actually a physical one, then mentally they had it all up here. So opening it up in their head and commenting on it. This the interpretations that they would do were called, does anyone know what they were called, the interpretations of the Bible that the rabbis did? They were called midrash, right? Midrash, which is, we generally think of as a creative mode of interpretation. Actually, in the early rabbinic period, it's not as creative as it would become in the later rabbinic period. In the early rabbinic period, they're doing very close contextual reading of material. They're just very sensitive to certain grammatical things that we wouldn't necessarily notice and they're motivated to try to get more meaning out of this text, to squeeze it for as much meaning as possible, because they want the text to speak to their contemporary reality, which is something that I think we all, we all can relate to. So half the time, they would do Midrash. Midrash is a very creative enterprise. You can, uh, the, the rabbis eventually develop all kinds of techniques with Midrash. So there's close reading, and then there's a kind of distant reading where you read um, one passage of the Bible in light of another passage in the Bible. You can read the Song of Songs in light of the book of Genesis, in light of the book of Leviticus. You can go back and forth between the books of the Bible and some of the great sermons that we have preserved from the world of Midrash that were actually given as sermons in synagogue. That was one of the exciting features of them was that the audience never really knew how they would connect the different pieces that, of the Bible to one another. They knew they, these pieces of the Bible were going to be connected, but how was a mystery, and that was part of the art of the Midrashic sermon. So one of the things the rabbis would do is they would study and the Bible and create Midrash. The other thing the rabbis would do, and it, it's less understandable, a little more confusing, but the other thing they would do is they would think of the religion in rules. They would articulate their vision of Judaism as rules. One of the reasons they, they would do this is there's actually a whole legacy of scholastic thinking about rules going back to Hammurabi's code and these kinds of ancient Near Eastern law codes, which also were largely done by scholars thinking through hypothetical cases and just working out what an ideal law system would be. So part of it is like there's a whole tradition in the ancient Near East of that kind of thinking. In addition to that, because Midrash was so creative, you kind of needed a corrective, an organizational corrective to that creativity. Creativity is wonderful, but if I wanted to, for example, figure out where the laws of bringing a, the four species on the holiday of Sukkot to synagogue, like where, what, what, what do I need to do to accomplish that? 
as part of my ritual. So you could look in the section in Leviticus that it's covered in the Torah, but that might be, because Midrash is able to comment on passages not in their local context, you might find that the discussion of the citron, right? So the Bible says, and you shall take for yourselves fruit tree beautiful. That's what the Bible says about the citron fruit that we take as part of the four species. So one of the things that Midrash does is Midrash lingers about on the ambiguities of this text. Fruit, tree, beautiful. Well, there's a lot of ambiguity. First of all, fruit covers the entire genus of fruit, I guess. Tree, again, like not specific. Beautiful, very subjective. Then think about this. Is it the beautiful fruit of a tree, the fruit of a beautiful tree, or the beautiful fruit of a beautiful tree. Like those of us who, who like studied mathematics in childhood know that depending on where you put the parentheses, you can distribute in different ways. The truth is we don't know. Scholars can't really tell us definitively what the original. So one of the things that Midrash would empower someone to do is they would say, oh, a fruit, beautiful tree, where would, I, where would I be able to learn that from? Oh, I'll look in Genesis, which talks about Adam and Eve in the garden and fruit and tree. And so quickly they make an association that whatever fruit was in the garden is also the fruit that you bring on the holiday of Sukkot. Now some of you are probably looking at me quizzically like, we don't bring an apple to synagogue on the holiday of Sukkot. So here's the funny thing. The fruit in the Garden of Eden is never identified in the Bible as an apple. We just know that at some point the Bible, at some point people started understanding the fruit in paradise as an apple. We even, there's this company that, like Apple and Eve, that makes like apple juice, right? Um, we've, we've accepted that. Um, there's a scholar at Rutgers, um, Azania Din Yisrael, who's coming out with a book, maybe out already, called the, how, the, how the Fruit Became an Apple. Um, it's all about this, this question. And in fact, in Rabbinic Midrash, you can find examples of people who say the fruit in the Garden of Eden was an etrog, was a citron, the same as, the hol- as the, what you bring on the holiday because of what I'm talking about, because of the fact that you can read across the canon. And then, where else is there fruit tree beautiful? Where there's this love poem, the Song of Songs, this most unusual erotic poem that's in the Hebrew Bible. Incidentally, Robert Alter in an interview recently said something that I've been saying for years, and I was happy to see that he said it. There's always been a controversy. What is this erotic love poem doing in the Bible? How did it end up here? And Alter says... It's here because it's, it's, from a language perspective, it's the most beautiful poetry we have from the ancient world. There wasn't, it's not like they had their religious canon and then they had their other books canon, right? The Bible was their great literature. And Song of Songs is a beautiful work of literature. It happens to be on a topic that we think of as maybe not something that people who are religious would want to be lingering on. But in that period, that was the only, there wasn't a separate library. This was your library. So um, the Song of Songs is all about lovers who are kissing under the fruit of a tree, right? So again, like, you could easily read the citron in light of the tree of the Song of Songs. You could read the Song of Songs in light of Genesis. And you see in Midrash that all of these kinds of things happen. Now, if you're if someone who's interested in knowing what fruit do I take, and your only corpus of information is Midrash, it would be very frustrating because I wouldn't know, do I look in Genesis, do I look in Leviticus, do I look in Song of Songs? It's a mess. So thinking legally in rules allows the rabbis to organize their religion. And the, um, the Mishnah that we have, the second century um, work of Mishnah that we have that Rabbi Judah the Prince edited and orally published, 
is the most beautifully organized work of rabbinic literature. Some of you may not know anything about the Mishnah. The Talmud outpaces the Mishnah in terms of people's knowledge of it. People don't know the Mishnah very well, but they know the Talmud. Um, because the Talmud basically undoes a lot of the beautiful organization of the Mishnah, but I'll get to that in a minute. The Mishnah has three levels of organization. It divides all of Judaism into six subject orders. So the first order is about agriculture. A lot of Judaism, Judaism has stuff to say about how you treat the land of Israel. So all of that is in the agricultural section. The second, the second order is about the calendar. So all, everything related to Shabbat or the Sabbath or holidays is all in the calendar section. The third one, which is usually called women, is actually by modern terms better understood as family law. Marriage, divorce, that's what you find in the third section. The fourth section is called, uh, it's officially called torts, but um, torts in the United States context would just be civil law, and in the Jewish context, that order includes both civil law and criminal law. So civil law and criminal law is the fourth order. The fifth order are things associated with the temple rituals, so any kind of sacrifice you're bringing or how the temple should be run. And the sixth order is the order of purities. So the Bible has a lot of laws about various encounters with biological realities that make one impure and various rituals that take impure people and make them pure again. This is what the Mishnah does. The Mishnah is organized into these six orders. And then when you drill down, those six orders are then subdivided into subject tractates. So take, for example, the order of the calendar. It's got a tractate about Shabbat. It's got a tractate about pretty much every holiday. The one exception is Hanukkah, doesn't get its own tractate. I'm not going to talk about that. But Passover, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, they each get their own tractate. So if you want to know the laws of citrons, you go to the order of the calendar, you go to the tractate of Sukkot, the holiday that you take a citron. Not only that, but the mission is so well organized that each chapter of the tractate has its own organizational setup. So the chapters are divided by content. And there's a chapter in the, there's a chapter that more or less in the tractate on Sukkot talks about the bringing of the four species. So the mission is very well organized. And um, so it, that's the, this is one of the things the rabbis would do. They would either do Midrash or they would do Mishnah. Now, in the early period, in the first century and the second century, when the rabbis went and they did Midrash and they did Mishnah, these were living educational practices. So in and around northern Israel, which is where a lot of this happened, places like Caesarea, Tiberias, um, uh, Safed, yes. So places like this, but also Bnei Brak, where right, we, we talk about uh, during the Passover Seder that they, the rabbis go to Bnei Brak and they have Passover over there, Bnei Brak and, and Lod, near where the airport is in Israel. So these places, um, there would be individual rabbis in those places who would be producing their own works of Midrash and their own works of Mishnah that were orally memorized by their students. They thought of these things as different curricular subjects, and they would spend half their time on one and half the time on the other. When the Mishnah was produced, Rabbi Judah the Prince was, he was the jack of all trades. He was like that three-sport athlete, you know, who, could, who was drafted in multiple sports. Rabbi Judah the Prince was a brilliant rabbinic scholar. He was a descendant of the House of David, so he had the lineage to, to be from royalty. And he was appointed by the Romans to be the official ruler, or designated appointee of the Jewish community in Judea in the second century. Uh, 
he was also, did I mention that he was wealthy? I mean, it probably goes together, right? So, so Rabbi Judah the Prince decides he's going to organize the Mishnah into a single, do, a single document, and that's what he does. He organizes the Mishnah into a single document that's very well organized. You may know that the Mishnah is weird because it has lots of, even though it's rules, it's got disagreeing rules, right? So it's, it's, it gives you a rule, and then it immediately undermines the rule. So the way I, I like to explain this, when I moved, the closest thing that we have in modern society to something like the Mishnah is the administrative rules of the road that you study when you want to get your driver's license, right? So the Mishnah doesn't give reasons or explanations for its rules. It just says the rule is this. And that's one of the unusual things about the Mishnah because Midrash connects ideas of Judaism, including legal ideas, to the biblical text. It also allows for logic to play a role. But then all of a sudden, you, 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 the Mishnah, and they just give you a set of rules without any connection to either logic or the Bible. Um, so what I like to say is I moved to, I moved to Chicago uh, 12 years ago from New York. I'm from New York City originally, where you're not allowed to make a right turn on a red light. So imagine my surprise when I show up to take, I, they make me, made me take a written driver's test in Illinois, and I, and I took the administrative law guidebook to study it, cram it, and see that I could know what the rules were before I took my test. And much to my surprise, I discovered that in the state of Illinois, you can make a left turn on a red light in certain circumstances. Does anyone have any idea when you can make, Shmoli, do you know? When you can make a left turn on a, on a red light? There we go. If you're on a one-way street going to another one-way street, you're allowed to make a left turn on a red light. It's a very unusual thing, and coming from New York City, where you're not allowed to make a right turn on a red light, it was completely baffling to me. But I, what I like to say is, um, imagine if, like, when I was reading that administrative law book, it said you're allowed to make a left turn on a red light from a one-way street to a one-way street, but Governor Blagojevich, who was the governor at the time, which makes this even funnier, but Governor <laughs> Blagojevich says that you cannot, right? <laughs> that is the feel of the Mishnah. The Mishnah gives you rules and then tells you, Sometimes the opposite of those rules. The Mishnah often has binary disagreements between rabbis. Sometimes there are not, there's like the first position is anonymous and then the second one is named. Sometimes the first one is named and the second one is anonymous. Sometimes you have three named people who have different positions. Um, we don't know exactly why, but we suspect that the reason why this happened is because Rabbi Judah the Prince was collecting all of these different oral traditions and he was trying to compromise and make peace among different competing factions of students. And so he wanted to include as much as possible. We know that he edited down some of the content he received. And we know that he, he had selection, he made some selections because there's another work of rabbinic literature called Tosefta, which is a supplement to the Mishnah, which offers us all kinds of Mishnah-like texts that were not included in the Mishnah, some of which were as, are as early as the Mishnah. So we have all kinds of evidence to the fact that Rabbi Judah the Prince had some, was, had some kind of selection process, but he was also trying to preserve a lot of this material. But one of the things that happened as a result of this is one of the hallmarks of the Mishnah is that it has this diversity and plurality, and the rabbis would later embrace this idea and make it the hallmark of rabbinic Judaism. That rabbinic Judaism believes in pluralism to the point of tolerating and even encouraging competing views of what the practice should be. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution. 
at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So Rabbi Judah the Prince creates the Mishnah. The Mishnah then becomes the center of the curriculum. So at one point during the pre-Mishnah days, the Bible's kind of the center, and they're creating things out of it using Midrash, and then they're organizing it in terms of rules some of the time. I like to think of Midrash and Mishnah as one is like left brain, one is right brain, one is the creative, and the other is the organizational. And, uh, but then suddenly now we have this definitive work, the Mishnah. And what happens is the existence of the Mishnah changes the curricular practices of the rabbis who would be after it. They now, instead of splitting their day into two, they spend their entire day unpacking the Mishnah, but it's, it's because of the nature of the Mishnah, because the, the Mishnah is rules without, rules without um, explanations or biblical connection, they are, um, they're motivated to try to figure out for every Mishnah, where did this come from? Like, where is this idea from? So essentially what ends up happening is the rabbis kind of undo some of the organizational and simplification work that went into the creation of the Mishnah, and that undoing is Talmud. Talmud was a study practice where they would sit with Mishnah and they would ask themselves, okay, I have this rule about the citron, and we need to get the citron on the holiday of Sukkot. Where do I know this from? And the answer was usually... Midrash, some kind of creative interpretation of the Bible. Now, because they also had a whole bunch of Mishnah texts floating around, sometimes they would put that Midrash in conversation with some Mishnah texts from a different tradition, from a different rabbi's cave somewhere up in northern Israel. Sometimes they would find contradictions between Midrash and Mishnah. And the conversation of the rabbis post-Mishnah, beginning in 200 with the creation of the Mishnah, became richer because they were, trying to, they were trying to organize this material and bring it together, and they were also adding their own new thoughts. Generation after generation, they were adding, they were coming up with sub-cases. Like the Mishnah is a rule book. If anyone's ever worked on rules, you know that there's like cases that come up that are not anticipated by the rules. There's like new wrinkles that have to be put on. I mean, our courts are constantly trying to, they're working the interstices of the law. New cases come up and they don't know what to do because they don't exactly fit the rule book. This is what happens in the post-Mishnah period, in the period of the Amoraim, the rabbis, in two different places. In the land of Israel, in Eretz Yisrael, um, what scholars refer to as the Palestinian Talmud. They call it the Palestinian Talmud because the scholarship about this book um, in the academy started in the 19th century in Germany, and in 19th century Germany, the area that we call Israel now was thought of as Palestine. So that is why they call it the Palestinian Talmud, and the name has struck. It is not a political statement of any kind. In the medieval period, the, what we now call in English the Palestinian Talmud was sometimes called the Talmud Yerushalmi, um, the Jerusalem Talmud, but academics don't like that because actually the Jerusalem Talmud wasn't made in Jerusalem at all. It's not from Jerusalem. Um, the medievals, medieval scholars in the Jewish tradition sometimes refer to it as the Talmud, Talmuda de Eretz Yisrael, the Talmud of the land of Israel, which would be more appropriate, but it's also a mouthful. So Palestinian Talmud has stuck. But the Palestinian Talmud that we have nowadays records some of the conversations that happened among rabbis between the 3rd century and the 5th century 
in Israel. Multiple generations of rabbis. The Babylonian Talmud, it records conversations that happened in Babylonia between Babylonian rabbis who were active between the 3rd century and the 6th century. And also, the Babylonian Talmud has a very important layer of anonymous, unattributed material, material that an editor has arranged that's very important in determining the meaning of some of the earlier material. My, my teachers, David Weiss Halivni and Shama Friedman, um, who are uh, senior scholars, um, Halivni is in his 90s, Friedman is in his 80s, um, in, the 19, in the 1960s and 70s, they really advanced our understanding of the composition of the Talmud and the value of the anonymous voice. Um, so we now understand that about 40% of the Babylonian Talmud is this anonymous, unattributed material, and it's very important for understanding the Talmud. Um, the, uh, that anonymous voice turned a loose conversation between rabbis from different times and places into a much more enmeshed conversation. Because it's not surprising that if the Talmud includes material, the Babylonian Talmud includes a lot of material both from Babylonia and from Israel. And it includes material for three centuries worth of rabbis. So sometimes some of that material is related because it's on the same Mishnah, but were it not for the editorial hands of the later layers, that would be the only thing they had in common. It was on the Mishnah. But the editorial layer works the edit editors work to enrich this material by bringing those things in conversation with each other. And, and this is all by way of introduction to the passage we're about to read. So if you can take out your, your, um, your handout. I, I want to tell you the context for this Talmud. So all Talmudic passages are in some ways commentaries to Mishnah. They're structured as commentaries to the Mishnah. And this is no, no exception. The Mishnah here is a Mishnah about what happens to a young woman who is going to be married who doesn't have any money, right? So one of the things that rabbinic literature, rabbinic literature, the rabbis in the Mishnah are producing an ideal notion of law, They're an ideal society. How should the ideal society be structured? So, you know, Plato used to ask these types of things philosophically. The rabbis dealt with it legally. How should an ideal society be structured? And they came up with laws to articulate. So they had various different community mechanisms for giving out charity. One of them was a cash collection. The community would, would collect charity, kind of like our federation system, where like the community would collectively gather a communal pot of money and then distribute that according to a set of rules about who is deserving of this money. So the Mishnah says that um, the Mishnah says that a um, a woman who who is supposed to is about to get married and doesn't have any means. Um, they give two hundred. The community gives two hundred um, coins as her dowry. But then the Mishnah says, but if she's from a formerly distinguished wealthy family that's now down on its luck, right? If she's recently impoverished, but was raised with a certain standard. So like also imagine like what if like sudden death in the family, like her father or mother passed away and now she's left with nothing. Then the standard has to be raised in light of her expectations. 
that there's a certain level at which the community is responsible to take care of people at the level to which they are accustomed. Right, so right there, the rule itself is very rich, right? We could, we could debate this and talk about this. That's fascinating. But I'm not going to do that yet. I want to get into the Talmud, and so you can see how this gets unpacked in the Talmud. And um, what's fascinating about the way this gets unpacked in the Talmud is that the Talmud uses a combination of pretty standard legal types of texts, rules, or interpretations of rules, alongside stories. And that combination of the, the story and the, and the rules and the interpretations is actually what I wrote my, my first book, Narrating the Law, is about the intersection of these things. This passage was not treated in that book, but the method we're going to use today is the method that I introduced in that book if you're interested for future reference. So, um, Let's, let's begin at the beginning of this um, passage. Um, I will read and translate. Amru alav al-Hilel hazakain. It was related about Hillel the elder. Shelakach ani ben tovim, that he bought for a certain poor man who was of a good family, echad, sus lirkovalav, ve'eved larutz lefanav, a horse to ride upon and a slave to run before him. Pamachat, on one occasion, Hillel could not find a slave to run before him. So Hillel himself ran before him for three miles. So we already said that the Mishnah had talked about this category of people who were once wealthy and are now down on their luck. They don't have, right? This story about Hillel is not coming up in the context of a wedding or a dowry. It's just a, a regular charity case. And what's, what's the lesson of this story? What's, what, what do you get out of this story? How does this story comment on the Mishnah? Is it different than the Mishnah? Is it the same? Actually, you're supposed to do more than what's expected. Yes. The story communicates, but this is the fascinating thing. The story communicates that Hillel does more than what he's expected. So let's unpack the, the story actually has two parts, right? It's got the first half, where he actually pays for a horse and a slave. And it's got the second half, where he can't find a slave, so he does the running himself. So what, what kind of a story is this? You know, sometimes like when we hear stories about great rabbis, um, Someone will say when it's over, they'll say, oh, I don't know if it's true or not, but they don't tell stories like that about you and me, right? I mean, right? Well, some, Som sometimes, right? There are the selfless among us. There definitely are the selfless among us, but in terms of a, a story type, I would say this is a kind of hagiography. It is a kind of story that you tell about a legendary figure that contributes to their legend. Well, certainly because of the horse and the slave. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, one of, the things, one of the things that I point out in, my, in narrating the law is that stories, scholars of literary theory have talked about, like, what is the difference between a story and, like, a legal rule? And one of the differences is that stories inherently have to be tellable. In order to be tellable, you have to be interesting. So, going back to my citron on Sukkot, because I love that thing. Um, 
If you told me that you came to synagogue on Sukkot and you brought four species with a citron, is that a tellable story? No, it's not, it's not unusual or different. What if, I told, what if you told me that you brought the, these four species on Passover? Now you have a story. What if you brought five species or three species? Now you have a story. In other words, it's, it's the violation of the expectation that makes the story worth telling. So part of the telling of these hagiographies is going to, it, it's exactly going to tell you that the figure in the story is doing more than what's expected, which puts us, the reader, or the regular person who is trying to figure out what our normative obligation is, what is my obligation, in a sort of sticky situation. Am I, am I supposed to be Hillel? Or is Hillel's behavior just underlining that like, that's not what normal people do, that's what going above and beyond? And I actually think that's kind of why the story you have the second half of the story and the first half. So one of the things I, I haven't told you yet is that um, we have so many works of rabbinic literature. We have the Talmud and we have the Mishnah. I also mentioned Tosefta. There are also lots of works of Midrash that are around and, and the Palestinian Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud. Because of that, we're able to do this like really fascinating comparative work. And we actually can see that in the original version of this story, it only has the first half. And so when it gets into the Babylonian Talmud, they've added the second half. And I would say the reason why they add the second half, the half where he doesn't find the slave and he does it himself, is because once you establish the first half as a norm, it's not a hagiography anymore. You have to push further and say, well, well not only did Hillel do this, and maybe, maybe at the time of the Babylonian Talmud when they added that second half, maybe it was standard that formerly wealthy people were now treated to the standard that they were accustomed. Yeah? yeah but the problem I'm having is did Hillel think it was more important to maintain this man's level of lifestyle rather than to continue studying whatever he was studying that made him Hillel? Did Hillel well, think... I mean, obviously, I'm feeling the answer is no, but, but the question should be asked. You know, it's interesting that you asked that. Hillel is an interesting figure because Hillel... And we know lots of stories about Hillel are told in rabbinic literature. He teaches Torah to a potential convert on one foot. Um, he doesn't push people away in the way that his counterpart Shammai does. He's the basis for our Hillels on college campuses because of this reason. Um, but Hillel is a second temple figure who really predates the rabbinic period. And the information we get about Hillel, is, especially stories, is often very clearly not historical and it, like legendary. Hillel is a figure of legend. In, in this sense, Hillel is not that different from figures that, like um, Choni the circle drawer, who is a figure in rabbinic literature who forces God to make it rain by writing a circle. So Choni has this charismatic relationship with God. He's kind of like a prophet. Um, Hillel plays that kind of role of being this kind of charismatic, legendary figure. Um, so. You know, we have other stories in which Hillel must learn Torah at all costs and like goes and gets, gets wet with snow and freezing because he, he, he can't afford to go to the study hall. And, um, but I don't know that we have a, we don't necessarily have a consistent picture of the historical Hillel because these are all separate legends that don't necessarily take each other into account. Um, you know, it is a good question. The, the rabbis in general believe that Torah study outweighs all other obligations, including, it, running in front of the horse. including running for, in general, we would expect the rabbis to say Torah study, but I will say there are texts that say in terms of like marrying off 
a poor woman, there are texts that will say that that is more important than studying Torah. Even to this day, you see in, um, in ultra-Orthodox communities that treat Torah study as a full-time vocation, they still will, will allow people to take off for the purposes of marrying off um, eligible uh, young, young people. So, um, yeah, okay, but let, let's keep going. Uh, the second text here, Tanu Rabbanan. Now, Tanu Rabbanan is a formula in the Talmud our rabbis taught. It's a formula that introduces a Tanaitic source. So this is a source that is from the generation of the Mishnah, but was not included in the Mishnah, which is generally referred to as a Baraita, an outside text, a text that is outside of the Mishnah. Ma'aseba anshei galil ha'elyon. Shelakhu le'ani ben tovim echad mitzipori litra basar b'chol yom. Our rabbis thought it once happened that the people of Upper Galilee bought for a poor member of a good family of Sepphoris a pound of meat every day. Now pay attention to amounts because it's going to be relevant soon. Um, now again, why are they telling this story? Because there's something excessive here. But telling these excessive stories, especially in a row, really underlines the fact that like, this is the expectation, that you go above and beyond a minimal, like you're not feeding them minimally, you're feeding them based on what they're used to. Now we get uh, the, next, the next story. Now, if those of you who don't read Hebrew or Aramaic won't realize that we're going to shift languages now from Hebrew to Aramaic. One of the cool things about the Talmud is it's written in combination of Hebrew and Aramaic. And one of the advantages of that language shift is it lets us identify what period pieces are from. So the later material is always in Aramaic. Like, there's never any early material in Aramaic. I shouldn't say never. There are always you know, the 0.01% the exceptions. But in general, the later material is in Aramaic, and the earlier material is in Hebrew. You can have later material that's in Hebrew too, but you won't have early material in Aramaic. This is a classic Aramaic story. A certain man once came, once applied to Rabbi Nechemia. Now, Rabbi Nechemia, we know from other places, is a second-generation Babylonian rabbi. That means he's two generations removed from the Mishnah. So he would have been active in the mid to late third century. And this man came, Amarle. The rabbi asked him, you know, what, what do your meals consist of? Bamata so'ed. Amarle, he answered him, Bebasar shamein v'yayin yashan. I drink old wine and I eat fat meat. The rabbi replies, Ritzoncha shetelgalgel imi ba'adashim. Will you consent to live with me on lentils? Gilgel imo ba'adashim. The other consented, lived with him on lentils, umate, and died. Amar, Amar. Now, Amar is a third-person, masculine, singular verb, meaning he said. But we don't know who it refers to, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Amar, oy lezeh sheharago nechemia. He said, woe is to this one whom nechemia has killed. Okay, so without realizing, without deciding who's talking yet, that last line of the story, woe is to, woe is to this one that Nehemiah killed. What is the message of the story? Is Nehemiah, who fed him lentils, in the wrong or in the right? 
He's in the wrong, right? It would seem. Okay, so now what's amazing about the Talmud also, because of its intergenerational nature and the way the anonymous voice works, is the anonymous editorial voice sometimes sets up dialogue and a back and forth resisting some of the texts that are a little difficult. So the next line is, Adaraba, the anonymous editor, jumps in and says, wait, au contraire, wait a second. It should say, alas, for Nehemiah, who killed this man. Let's not feel sorry for the man. Let's feel sorry for Nehemiah. Ihu, the man, who delo ibayile lifnuke nafshe kule hai. It was he who should not have spoiled himself so much. It's not Nehemiah's fault for killing him. It's the man's fault for dying, for getting used to the diet of fat meat and old wine. It's not Nehemiah's fault. It's the man's fault. We can't blame Nehemiah for this. Well, when he was wealthy, he was eating very rich delicacies before that. And then he became poor, and he comes to Nehemiah for food, and Nehemiah says, what are you used to? And he says, I'm used to caviar. And Nehemiah says, well, I don't have caviar. Will you eat beans with me? And he eats beans, and he dies. Right? So the text first blames Nehemiah, but then it steps back, and it blames the man. Now, one of the things that's great about this text, look at, go back home. If you have translations of the Talmud, Go back home, you'll see all the translations. They don't know what to do here. And it's because fundamentally there's a problem. That voice, who's speaking? Amar, he said. Um, in Aramaic, so who could possibly be talking? Amar could be some kind of like anonymous narrator. Not the, third, not the later anonymous narrator who says au contraire, but maybe some kind of original storytelling narrator. But that's not usual in Talmudic stories. So it's more likely to be a character. Um, it could be Nehemiah talking himself. That is definitely possible. Amar, meaning Nehemiah said, woe is to this guy that Nehemiah killed. Now, you might find that odd because Nehemiah would be talking about himself in the third person. But a little known fact about Aramaic grammar is that's actually how Aramaic syntax works. You speak about yourself in stories in the third person. So that would actually be fine. But the other way of reading it is it's possible that the person speaking is the dead man. Because it is also common in these Amoraic stories for the dead to speak after they're dead about themselves. Um, so if you want to talk about levels of ambiguity in this text, there are three different possible speakers. And then, but then, but then it's clear that the anonymous editor understands the earlier text to be critical of Nehemiah, um, even though, depending on which speaker is originally, it might not be that critical of Nehemiah. And it feels so strongly about it that it gets pulled in and says, no, I'm not going to blame Nehemiah. It's not Nehemiah's fault. It's okay. Now let's keep reading because it continues. Similar story. Uh, the Talmud stories are often told in these series where the same story repeats itself. Someone comes before Rava. Rava is a fourth generation Babylonian Amor. So we said that Rav Nehemiah was a uh, second generation, would have been active around the third century. Rava is the leading, most often cited rabbi in the Babylonian Talmud. He is probably the most influential rabbi in the Babylonian Talmud. My late teacher, Yaakov Elman, who passed away a few months ago, um, really popularized this idea that Rava is the most important figure in the Babylonian Talmud. And um, Rava, uh, so Rava would have been active around the turn of the fourth century, around the early fourth century. 
Um, so someone came before Rava. What man wants applied to Rava for maintenance? Amar lo. Bamata soed. What do your meals consist of? He asked him. Amar lo betarnugolet petuma v'yayin yashan. Fat chicken and old wine. Amar le. So Rava says to him, did, did you not consider the burden of the community? Amar le. The man says to Rava, Atu mididhuka achilna. Do I eat of their food? Midirachmana ka'achilna. I eat the food of the all-merciful, of God. Ditanina, for we learn in a midrashic brayta, citing, so here's a classic midrash. It cites a verse from Psalms that we say in the ashray regularly. Ene kol elecha yisaberu v'ata notein lahem et ochlam b'ito. Right? Um, the eyes of all wait for thee, and thou, or you, givest them their food in due season. Now, what does Midrash do? It lingers on things like pronouns. Does it say, in their season? No, it says, in his season. Milame, this teaches. Shekol echad ve'echad notein hakadosh baruchu parnasato be'ito that everyone, every individual is provided for by God according to his or her own time or habits. So what's happened now is that the tension over whether this whole standard of the Mishnah of, based on the respect of the person has now been, it's moved into the story. It was, you know, it was, it was kind of like our own reaction to the Mishnah, maybe we were thinking that, but we didn't say it, and then you get in that first story of Rav Nechemya, it's the anonymous voice, and then it becomes something that Rava himself gives voice to. Like, what about... But it's responded to in the story, and the, the man seems to be teaching Rava a lesson, and it's a lesson about the interplay between halacha and theology. Yes, like, halacha is an ideal law for an ideal world, but that world is still governed by God. And when you're talking about giving charity and food, what about God's role in that? So, um, but meanwhile, look what happens. In the, we, get a, we get a classic deus ex machina, an, an end of the story like in, like in ancient Greek literature. Adahachi. Uh, Adahachi. Um, meanwhile, the text is not very well aligned. Atai achte de Rava, de lo There arrived Rava's sister who had not seen him for 13 years. And what did she have? and brought him a fat chicken and old wine. In other words, in fulfillment of the Midrash that God provides, his sister, show, Rava's sister, shows up with the exact food the guy had requested. So what is the story's message? On the one hand, you have one of the leading rabbis of the Talmud, Rava, finding issue with this idea that there should be an expectation that the community is going to support people according to the level they were accustomed. And yet, in the story, he gets his comeuppance. Not only does the man respond to him using Midrash from the Bible, but a miracle happens. His sister shows up with exactly the menu that the man wanted. Amar, he said, what a remarkable incident. Amar lay. He said to him, and again here there's an ambiguity about who is speaking, but it's probably Rava, and I won't get into whether it is or it isn't. Neneti lach kum echol. I have been answered from you. 
Yeruvah says to the man, I have been answered from you. In other words, I have been rebuked and the message has been received. Come and eat. Okay? So if the text is resolving something, it is resolving in the direction of um, this expectation that you have to take care of people in this way. Yeah. I'm having a problem because it's the, the, it seems to be saying to me that, uh, that this man who was living off the fat of the land uh, it was indifferent to what was going on around him. And, and the rabbi said, you know, don't you think about the community? And he says to him, you know, forget about the community. It's God's responsibility, not mine. Yes. Not mine. Right. So it seems to be an argument for not doing anything rather than doing something. Um, oh, so your question is that the man in the story is so odious in the way he's thinking about things that it's not, it's, I don't have to worry about the community. That's not my problem. Right. That's God's problem. Right. That, so that it's encouraging in you, the reader, a reaction that says, I don't have to respond to that. Why should I have to give in to that, right? Well, is that what I'm hearing? But what, are you, what he's saying is it's the community. God will take care. And therefore, it's not my requirement to take care. And the sister comes and she presents us, and this is the miracle. So nobody had to do anything, you see. Leave it up to God. Don't worry about those people, poor people. Right. So this is where, I mean, this is where um, we start to get into some questions of economics. Um, economics are, also, are often zero sum, or they're about the size of the, splitting up the pie. And giving someone according to what they're accustomed to usually has to come at a cost somewhere. It's going to come at a cost to someone else. Um, you know, the line that the man says, where he says, uh, um, where Rava asks him, you know, aren't you worried, the burden of the community, right? And, and the man says, I, I don't have to worry about that. Um, there is a way of thinking religiously where you don't have to think about the community, where you have this personal interaction with God and all that. Like, so there is, a there is a place within the religion for this man's approach. I think there's also a place, though, for, um, for asking the question that Rava is asking. Well, what about, you know, if, if you are thinking about the larger community and you're thinking about some of these, some of the question of, well, where's the money going to come from? Um, you know, someone, one person's loss is somebody else's gain. One person's gain is somebody else's loss. Um, and especially when you're talking about long-term sustenance, a repeat, recurring, rec the recurring financing of paying for someone's lifestyle choice, um, it seems problematic. And then there, there's the, also the additional piece of it, which is... Um, building in to your ideal system some kind of classism that recognizes and sees people based on their economic position or quality of life. And so, so there are actually, there are great texts in the Mishnah elsewhere. There's a, there's a text in, um, in Bava Metzia, in Tractate Bava Metzia, in which um, you have a Mishnah in which the Mishnah is talking about um, paying workers and allowing workers, like do you, can, if workers are working in your field and they're picking fruits, 
when are they allowed to pick, when are they allowed to eat the fruits that they're picking? Um, and, uh, and there's an attempt made by one of the rabbis to differentiate between classes of people, to say, well, it kind of depends, like, what class of people. And Rabbi Akiva comes along, the legendary Rabbi Akiva, who's from the second century, one of the early rabbis, and says, what do you mean? They're all, someone tries to say that they're, you know, but if they're from the sons of princes, in other words, if they're, they're from kind of royalty, aristocracy, and Rabbi Akiva comes along and says, they're all the sons of princes, because they're all the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all, right? So, um, there's, there's, there is an inherent problem in this Mishnah. The Mishnah seems so this-worldly in its sensitivity towards this young woman who comes from a family of means and is now going to not have the wedding or the marriage that she thought she was going to have. And there's something so empathetic about the Mishnah's impulse to take care of her. But in choosing to see that person and what they were expecting... And to give them that expectation, isn't there a cost? Well, what about her neighbor who never had that expectation, who's going to get the basic? Like, why, why is that equitable or fair? Um, so this is, this is where um, these, these issues come up. And I want to I finish our text and reflect a little bit more about this. OK, thank you. Marukva hava anya beshibibute. Marukva, so Marukva is a, um, another third generation um, Babylonian Amora. So he's actually prior to Rava. Though there is a possibility that this Marukva is later. There are sometimes rabbis, multiple names appear in the Talmud. And um, Marukva had a poor man in his neighborhood to whom he regularly sent 400 zuz on the eve of every day of atonement. On one occasion, he sent them through his son, who came back and said to him, he doesn't need your help. What have you seen, his father asked. I saw, the son replied, that they were spraying old wine before him. Old wine is, as you know by now, a trope of fancy, expensive. And they were spraying it. I like to envision what happens in, in locker rooms in sports after a championship when they're spraying the, the champagne everywhere. Um, they're wasting it, in other words. And the son took this to mean he's wealthy and he doesn't need support. But the father says, is he so delicate? The father said, is he, in other words, is he so delicate that he needs um, only old wine? And doubling the amount, he sent it back to him. Right? So he gave 800, now he gives 800 zuz to this man. Again, like, it's now at the level of perception where the son and the father are seeing different things. The son sees this. And the son was actually the one who eyewitnessed it. And he thinks it's completely wasteful. But the father sees someone who's used to delicacy and should be taken care of. Um, I'm not going to have time to talk about this last passage, um, uh, which just works off the Marukva story a little bit. But I will say this. I will say that um, Maimonides, in his laws of, Maimonides wrote in his Mishnah Torah, um, and Maimonides' Mishnah Torah is kind of like an undoing of the Talmud. Maimonides thought the Talmud had gotten too conversational. He didn't like this idea of multiple opinions. He didn't like that the Talmud often doesn't resolve the legal issues. He wanted to give you like a straight Hebrew language, single opinion for every uh, situation. Um, and he doesn't use 
Agada, Agada, the storytelling parts of the, of the Talmud. He, he gets rid of that. He just gives you the rule. When you get to the laws of charity, the chapter on the laws of charity in Maimonides' is Mishnah Torah, all of this stuff is in there, the stories. And, um, and it's kind of baffling. Like, why, why does he feel the need to, to do that here? And so I, I, my feeling about the, the reason why the stories play such an important role in this particular context, in the charity context, is it's an area of life in which perspective and subjectivity really make a big difference, your ability to evaluate. And so a, a, a fixed rule is really going to be difficult for lots of reasons to implement. At the same time, and this is where my macroeconomics comes in, um, in the Jewish tradition, in the rabbinic tradition, apart from this passage that we read today, there are passages where the rabbis are very bureaucratic. And they come up with a system of collecting, and they come up with a system of contributing, where everyone gives an equal amount, and everyone receives an equal amount. This situation that's described in that Mishnah here and in the Talmud is an opportunity for the Talmud to shed some of that macroeconomically efficient giving. And I think the reason why stories and why Maimonides sheds this giving is because I think sometimes when it comes to charity, the macroeconomic way of thinking might be efficient, but it is both not empathetic on a basic human level, and it's also not, um, it's also, it doesn't give the giver the same kind of religious and spiritual feeling as, right, so when, when, when I get collected from, right, yeah, it makes sense that everyone gives a certain, everyone gives 50 zuz a week to a community pot, and then the community pot gives out that money. That is the most efficient way of collecting equally and giving equally. But it's not, it's not the same as the Talmud story about the man who, like, wants to give in person, but doesn't want the person to see him because he doesn't want to get a benefit. So he gives the person, and then he rushes back, and he jumps in an oven. So the person, uh, he and his wife, they both jump in the oven, and she actually isn't burned, so he steps on her feet. I mean, a fascinating story. The Talmud has all these stories about charity, and, and part of the reason, I think, is that even though macroeconomics is often the smart way of distributing assets, when you have a pie to share, you want to make sure it's collected and distributed evenly, but there's something that, on a personal meaning level, um, is missing. Um, and I think that a passage like this, which uses stories to demonstrate empathy while also questioning that empathy, is a good way of introducing a communal conversation about what we're doing when we give charity. And when maybe there are times where empathy is the way to go. And maybe there are times in which macroeconomic efficiency is the way to go. Um, so I, I will stop there and open it up for questions. Um, our time is short, but I, if, if, if there are questions or follow-up that you have about this passage or anything else, please, by all means. Yes? Because all the stories and all the Mishnah and everything was oral for so many years, obviously, technologically, there was nothing to write on. How do they... How do they know that what they're now creating and distributing to the public is, has any merit and has any credibility? So first of all, I need to correct something that you said. 
the rabbis, during the rabbinic period, the technology for writing existed. No, I mean before that. that, that didn't it come from before that? Before the rabbinic period? Even from before the rabbinic period, right? I mentioned this, the sects of the second, uh, the second temple. Yeah. So at that time, there was the ability to write things down. That's why we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're written down. The rabbis choose deliberately to preserve their corpus as an oral literature, oh, even though they have a technology oh, to do okay. it. But, I mean, it, it does raise the question of how confident can we be that the literature that we have today is the literature produced by the rabbis. And that gets into a whole field of, there's a whole field of textual criticism where people collect all of the different versions of rabbinic literature that are existence in the world today, and they try to reconstruct, to the best of our ability, what was the original text. Um, I talk about it a little bit in my, in my book, The Talmud of Biography, um, about what, what goes on with that. Um, but I will say, as someone with a lot of experience in textual criticism, um, it is remarkable how loyal the oral transmission process was. Um, the rabbis produced their literature orally, and it remained oral until it started to be written down in the 8th century. And some people were still studying the Talmud and the earlier materials orally into the 9th century. So, and yet, when we look at the different versions that emerged from, the, from different places where they started to transcribe it, the overlap is remarkable. So even though scholars like myself will spend a lot of time figuring out the nuanced differences, those nuanced differences are in maybe 2.5% of the entire text that we have. I mean, the, 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 the level of accuracy is remarkable. Amazing. Yeah. And the other thing about it is because we have parallel texts like Babylonian Talmud, Palestinian Talmud, we get the remarkable accuracy where like the Palestinian Talmud will quote something in the name of a specific rabbi and we'll get the same thing quoted in the Babylonian Talmud in the name of that same rabbi. So, and that's not something that was corrected over time. Sometimes it was, but in many cases it wasn't corrected over time. That's just the way they came down. So that it sort of demonstrates how reliable and faithful the, the reporting was. Yeah. Wasn't Maimonides' idea of the highest form of charity where the donor did not know the donee and the donee did not know the donor? Yes, Maimonides has a list of what he considers like levels of charity, and the highest form is um, anonym anonymity on both sides. And um, he draws on this story that I mentioned, where someone tries to give anonymously and then is about to be found out and so jumps into a fiery furnace um, in order into a hot oven in order not to be found out, because that's how important the value. Now, stories like that are hyperbolic. Um, I, we don't accept that they were, from a scholarly perspective, they're not historical reporting. But they reflect the values of the people who came up with these stories. They want to, and it's, it's, it's similar to the hagiography about Hillel. It's setting up a vision of what super erogatory of like really special behavior is. Okay, I think we're I think we're done. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education 
in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.